Good morning. That is a really good question, isn't it? The Lord is continually calling us to be renewed and to, and to be transformed individually and as, as a family, as a church family. And what would, it, what would it look like if, as an entire congregation, we were unified in being yielded to the Holy Spirit, obedient to His Word, loving one another and, and communicating His glory all around? It's a good question. I want to invite you to, uh, to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and before I read uh, this, this passage, I just want to say something in terms of the context of our message this morning. I mean, we just sang about blessing and favor and goodness, and you can open your news feed any week, uh, particularly the last few days, and it's evident that we are a long ways from the, the blessedness and the, the, the goodness, the very goodness of Genesis chapter 1. The man taking up arms against his fellow man and bringing about destruction and bloodshed and separation of families and the destruction of wealth. All of that is the, the polar opposite of the, the goodness that is set forth in Genesis chapter 1. We look forward to that day when we are in the celestial city, when, when God's redeemed children are in the celestial city and there's, there's, no, more, there's no more curse there's no more death. There's no more sorrow. There's no more pain. Nation, nations will not learn war anymore. But all will be well and at peace in God's new creation. The question is, how did we, how did we get here? How, how did we get from the exceeding goodness of Genesis chapter 1 to the exceeding wickedness of human history. And this question begins to get answered for us in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 4, verse 26. Before I read the passage, there's one other thing I want to do. It's an important uh, teaching point so that you understand how this passage and so that you understand how the entire book of Genesis is put together. So look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 is the introduction, the prologue, the first word, the foundational word 
to the book of Genesis. Now, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, we encounter the first of 11 sections that are all introduced in a very similar way. Okay? These are the generations of the heaven and the earth. Now, get ready to, get ready to flip pages in your Bible, okay? Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Go to chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Go to chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now go to chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Go down to chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. It's a very long section, by the way. It's about Abraham. Uh, go to chapter 25, verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son. Uh, verse 19 of the same chapter. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. That's another big section about Jacob. Go to chapter 36, verse 1. We're almost done. 36, verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. And then same chapter, verse 9. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites. And then the final section, beginning in Genesis chapter 37, verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. That's how the book of Genesis is put together. Each of those 11 units carries the storyline forward. And what does it mean, these are the generations of? Jonathan Safarti uh, explains it in terms of what followed from. Or Arnold Fruchtenbaum very similarly, similarly describes it as what became of. It, it, perfect example is these are the generations of Terah. Long section, 12 or 13 chapters. But it's not really about Terah. It's what followed from or what came from Terah, which of course was Terah's son Abraham, and that big section introduced as the generations of Terah is really all about Abraham. So what's going on in chapter 2 verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, means something like what happened after the world was made. What followed from God's creation of the heavens and the earth? What became of the wonderful heavens and the earth that God made? That's the idea, and it runs from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 4, verse 26. But before the author jumps right into the bad news, which is where he's headed, in chapter 3 and 4, before he jumps to the bad news, he first of all wants to give us more detail about the creation of mankind. Genesis 1, 26 to 30 told us about the creation of man and woman in God's image, 
But now, Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 to 25, gives us additional and very important information about the creation of man and woman. When I was in, when I was in college, I had a Bible professor, and I, I remember how he explained the difference between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. It stuck with me for over 20 years. He said, Genesis chapter 1, like 1, 1 to 2, 3, Genesis chapter 1 is a telescopic overview of God's entire work of creation. And then Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 to 25, is a microscopic blow-up of the high point of creation. You see, Genesis 2, 5 to 25, reaches back into day 6 at the end of chapter 1 and unpacks it for us in detail. So, I hope that that is helpful for you in terms of understanding uh, this new section of Genesis that we are entering and, and as well as the, how the whole book is put together. So, with that said, let me read Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. Holy Scripture says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, 
he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the Word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would make clear to us Your design for the world, Your design for our lives. Where there is failure and frustration and sin in which we all share, I pray that there would be a strong sense of grace coming in to pardon us and to purify us and to transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me, uh, let me give you a quick outline of this passage, and then we'll walk through it, okay? First, there is no man, verses 5 and 6. Second, God makes a man, verse 7. Then, verses 8 to 17, God gives the man a home and a set of responsibilities. Fourth, verses 18 to 20, the man is alone. There is no woman. Then fifth, God makes a woman and brings her to the man, verses 21 to 23. And then finally, verse 25, the man and his wife are together in their home and life is good. Now in that outline, I skipped over verse 24. We'll get to that. Verse 24 is a word of instruction that is based on God's activity in the verses that come before verse 24. So let's, so let's walk through this, okay? First, there is no man. Keep in mind that the focus of chapter 2, verses 4 to 25, is not the whole earth, but it's Eden and the garden that God is going to plant there. God planned to plant a beautiful and fruitful garden somewhere in the east, but there were two issues that required attention. Keep in mind that it was not God's intention to sustain the world directly without intermediary influences. If God wanted the, the, to make the light shine without the sun, and for plants to grow without water, and for gardens to flourish without human cultivators, that's easy enough for God to do. But that isn't the kind of world that God had in mind. Instead, God envisioned a world full of diverse creatures in interdependent relationships with one another. Thus, bushes, plants, and trees need water and gardens and orchards and vineyards need cultivators. And then in due course, man himself, the gardener, needs the fruit that the garden produces. The vision here is of ultimate dependence on the Lord, but interdependence among 
creatures. The garden will need a water supply. And in verse 6, the water supply came in the form of a mist. And in verse 10, the water supply comes in the form of a river. But there was no man to work the ground. No man to cultivate and manage the growth of the garden. And so that brings us to the second point. God makes a man. Verse 7. Notice how personal God's creative activity is depicted here in verse 7. God takes the, the dust of the ground into His hands and like a master potter goes to work creating, forming a man. It's interesting. Uh, there's a number of interesting things here that we've got to pay attention to. In chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, 3, the word Yahweh in, in our English Bibles, that's translated capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. Yahweh's name does not occur in chapter 1 in the beginning of chapter 2, but it does first appear here in the section that we're reading today. Why is that? Well, the Bible doesn't specifically say why that is, but I think it's very fitting because Yahweh is God's covenant name that He reveals to His people. And so it makes sense when things are going to begin to be focused in, in intimate detail on the creation of man and woman and God's relationship with them that His covenant name Yahweh would be used for the first time. Another thing to realize is that the man's name, Adam, is closely related to the physical stuff from which he is made. The dust of the ground, Adama. Adama, Adam. A -A Adam Adam's name comes, as it were, from the ground. And so, so God takes this, this dust of the ground, clay, into His hands and sculpts it into a man and then He breathes life into the man. What, what you can see there is both the humility and the glory of man. The humility of man is that we're, we're made from the, the physical stuff of the ground. I mean, do you realize what your physical body is composed of? 99, about 99.85% of your physical body is composed of 11 essential elements. Oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, carbon, calcium, phosphorus, sulfur, potassium, sodium, chlorine, and magnesium. If you could break down your physical body into those 11 constituent parts and put them all in separate containers, you ain't worth much. And neither am I. But, but the thing is, is that God takes all of that stuff and, and, and weaves together intricate bodily Systems, complex systems, networks within the body that all work together. It's, it's remarkable. You and I are incapable of that kind of creative work. 
but so, so there's, this, there's this humility to man. But on the other hand, there's also this glory because we're God's handiwork. He gives us His special attention. He, he personally breathed into Adam the breath of life. And of course, we learn from chapter 1 that man is made in the image of God. And so here we encounter both our littleness but also our glory. After making the man, we come to the third section, verses 8 to 17, which I said is this, God gives the man a home and a set of responsibilities. Now, I realize that sin really complicates our lives. I mean, that's an understatement. Sin complicates our lives big time. But you've got you've to grasp the pattern because the pattern is instructive. And so this is especially a word for you young men. Young men, this is a really good time to tune in. Not that you should have been tuned out, but... Um, before the Lord gives the man a wife, He gives the man a home. A productive homestead. A means of provision and an assignment. That comes first. Don't put the cart of marriage before the horse of responsible manhood. Don't rush to relational intimacy without having your head on straight. And having your head on straight means that you understand and respect God's design for how life works and how life gets sustained. So, learn, learn, learn from this pattern. Now, so, so, so the first thing that God does here after He created the man is He, he plants a garden. This garden is going to become man's home and also his workplace. Now, God had already filled the wider earth with all kinds of vegetation, both plants and trees. He did that on day three, as we learned in Genesis chapter one. But now, on day six, after creating the man and before creating the woman, he plants a garden. Perhaps he added some new species into the mix that hadn't shown up on day three. But in any case, he plants a garden with numerous trees, and I assume these, these bushes and small plants, and this, this productive homestead was to become man's home. It was a productive and well-watered garden. Every beautiful tree with nutritious fruit was there, as well as the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which I'll come back to in just a moment. In verse 10, we learn that this garden is well watered. There's this pretty impressive river that flows out of Eden into the garden and then becomes four head, head, headwaters to four other rivers. And I will say this, uh, I would not encourage you to get bogged down in the geography of verses 10 through 14 because this is, this is pre-flood geography. It's tempting, it's tempting to think that well, this, he's talking about the Middle East, right? He's talking about Mesopotamia, right? 
but it's, it's hard to say because the, the structure of the earth was very different before the flood destroyed the original creation and reworked things big time. So we don't really know where Eden was and exactly what its geography was like, but it was it was well, well, a well-watered land, uh, rich in you know, natural resources, but I wouldn't get bogged down in the actual geography. Next comes the responsibilities. Uh, in, verse, in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, work and keep, cultivate and protect, develop and preserve. It's difficult to know exactly what his work would have consisted of, because there was no, no weeds, no thorns, no thistles, no pests, no drought, no ecological challenges. It was, a, it was a very good, perfectly ordered world. Nevertheless, God did not create the man to take leisurely river walks all day long and just go bird watching and take naps. That, that's, that's, not, that's not what's going on here, is it? No, no. God created the man to work. To have a sense of responsibility. To manage and oversee and exercise dominion. So that was the, that was the first responsibility that He gave the man. Now here's the second responsibility. And what I'm doing here is I'm generalizing the instruction from verses 16 and 17. Adam was invited to live joyfully and freely within the boundaries that God had established. One author describes verses 16 and 17 as one no in a world of yes. One no in a world of yes. And the very sad thing is that so many people have this conception of God that He is the God of a thousand prohibitions. And a few reluctant permissions, but be careful not to have too much fun. A lot of people conceive of God that way. It's the cosmic killjoy. But this is not what we see here. This is wide open invitation to enjoy the good things that God had made. A world of yes. A world of invitation. A world to enjoy the the bounty of God's goodness and to eat freely from any tree to eat to his heart's content. But there was one restriction, right? One restriction. There was one tree. I assume it was an ordinary tree to which God attached special significance. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. If you eat from that tree and the day that you eat from that tree, you will surely die. The, the question that pr- was presented itself to Adam it is, will you trust me? Will you love me? Will you, will you obey me? Will you live in the wide open expansiveness of God's will? Or will you chase after the one thing that He said not to do? Life and death hang in the balance. So now, you've got a man with a home and a job to do, but there's something incomplete about it all. And so this takes us to the fourth point. 
in verses 18 to 20, the man is alone. Specifically, the man is alone with respect to his own kind. Of course, the man has fellowship with God. And that's foundational and essential. And the man can interact with the animals, but the animals are not made in God's image, and so the depth of interaction is quite limited. And God says in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. Think about that. When we read through chapter 1, God made this and He saw that it was good. God made this and He saw that it was good. God made this and He saw that it was good. Now he sees something that's it's not good. And, and, and commentators point out that the, the point isn't that it's, it's, it's evil. Man, man's aloneness is not evil. It's just it's incomplete. God, God, God's creative design is not yet complete. And God calls attention to that detail and says something's missing here. And he says that for our benefit. He knows what he's going to do. He says that for our benefit. And then he will do something about it. He's what he says is, I will make him a helper fit for him, a helper corresponding to him or suitable to him, one who is equal to the man and comes alongside of the man to help him. This concept of helping is in no way a demeaning term. In fact, over and over again, the Old Testament refers to God as our helper, the one who helps his people. Adam needs a human helper. So God says it is not good in verse 18, and then what seems to be happening in verses 19 and 20 is that God wants to bring the man to his own awareness of the fact that there is no suitable counterpart for him anywhere else. God is bringing the man to a, a sense of his own aloneness before God meets the need. And so God, who had made all of the animals, marches many of those animals before Adam. And in an exercise of the dominion that God gave to mankind in chapter 1, remember, God gave mankind dominion over the birds of the sky and over the land animals and over the fish of the sea. And right here in Genesis 2, Adam is exercising that dominion and assigning names to many of the birds and the land animals. And then it says at the end of verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Not that that surprised God, but that Adam now realizes that he has not a partner. So fifth, moving to verses 21 to 23, God makes a woman for the man. God performs the first surgery in the history of of the world. He causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and then he takes from the man's side, takes a rib from the man's side, from the man's very own flesh and blood. Notice it's not enough to say that man and woman are made of the same stuff. If God had made the man from the dust of the earth 
and had independently made the woman from the dust of the earth, you could say they were made from the same stuff. It's not enough to say that they're made from the same stuff. Instead, the woman was made from the man. And this shows the essential unity of mankind. The essential unity of marriage. The woman is created from the man, for the man, and brought to the man, and then the man receives her as part of himself and rejoices in her. He is The man is full of joy in verse 23. This at last! Not a bear, not an eagle, not a hawk, not a horse! This at last is someone like me! Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of, taken out of man. And there's a play, of, play on words there in the Hebrew. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Husbands, where does your wife belong? What do we, what do we learn here from Genesis chapter 2? She belongs at your side, right over your heart. Paul unpacks this in, 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 in wonderful detail in Ephesians chapter 5 where he talks about how this, this union between the man and his wife is so profound that they are, they're this one flesh reality. The man who loves his wife loves himself. The man who troubles his wife troubles himself. You flourish together or you languish together. Now at this point in the chapter, there is a break in the narrative of what happened with the first man and the first woman. And now, God the Holy Spirit inspires the human author of Scripture to write a word of instruction for us and for everyone who would read Scripture or who would hear Scripture read. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verses 18 to 23 is the divinely ordained pattern that human marriages must follow. In terms of the the, the physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, Unity that is unique to divinely instituted marriage, it is not man and beast. It is not man and man. It is not man and porn. It is not man and multiple wives, concubines, and mistresses. It is not man and a one night stand. It is not man and seeking the benefits without the covenantal commitment. It's man and woman joined together and becoming one flesh. Only woman 
is God's answer to man's social aloneness, to man's incompleteness. Therefore, because of all that, a man shall live in accordance with God's design. His father and mother ought to model it and teach it and prepare him for it. And when the time is right, he shall leave his father and his mother. He shall shall leave them in terms of the primary emotional attachment and he shall hold fast to his wife. Arnold Fruchtenbaum talks about how this this word holding fast means stick like glue. The man shall leave his father and mother and stick like glue to his wife. Covenantal commitment and faithfulness. And the two shall become one flesh. And so, having given us that instruction, the chapter ends. The man and his wife are together in their home. And life is good. Isn't 25 beautiful? There's nothing to hide. There's no physical blemish. There's no moral blemish. There is nothing of which to be ashamed concerning oneself or the other. Unself-conscious, transparent unity. The man and his wife in a perfectly good and well-ordered creation. How, How different. You know, maybe you read about the Ukrainian couple this past week. I think it was on Thursday. They tied the knot. They were supposed to get married in May. The future is bleak. They tied the knot on Thursday. Then they went out to get weaponry and defend their nation. That's commendable, but what I want you to see is, wow, what a a difference from the, the harmony and the bliss and the transparency and the safety of Adam and Eve in their first home at the end of chapter 2. Let me, make a, let me make a few applications for us from this chapter. First application, very simple. Work is good. Work is good. Work is not a function of the fall. Now, as we're going to learn in Genesis chapter 3, work is made exceedingly more difficult and very frustrating because of the fall. But the problem isn't the work itself. The work itself cultivating, developing, growing, guarding, managing, exercising dominion. Those things are good. You and I are created to work. Second, the second application I want to make is that marriage is the basic building block of society. And I say that very deliberately. I did not say that the individual is the basic, basic building block of society. I did not say that. I said marriage. God-ordained marriage is the basic building block of society. The blessed life. The way to fulfill the great dominion mandate. I, I realize, as I said last week, that God does gift certain individuals now in, in this context where the human population is quite large and there's human community, community to be found all over. God does give certain individuals to live sanctified, contented, and fruitful lives without marriage. But the normative pattern 
in the Old Testament and the New Testament is to live in the blessed estate of marriage. Marriage is the basic building block of society. Think about this. Think about this. Adam lived maybe 12 hours. It's hard to say, but maybe he lived 12 hours without a wife. And then he got married on the first day of his life. Don't, don't, don't miss the lesson. The woman lived maybe five minutes before she was brought to the man. She got married in the first hour of her life. Day one for both of them was the day that they, they were married. Sin complicates everything, like I said before, but if God's grace is actively at work in your life and in your family's life, I want you to hear this. I would not counsel you to leave father and mother and venture out on some prolonged individualistic journey to find yourself. God did not create Adam to discover himself, but to discover his wife right off the bat. Marriage should be held in high regard among believers. Hebrews chapter 13. And my counsel is, got, a, got some counsel for young men and young women. Now, I want you to know, I'm going to, after we get through chapter 3, I'm going to do a little deeper digging into biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. We'll probably devote one sermon to each of those topics. Very important to synthesize all that we're seeing here. But for now, I just want to say this. Young man, put away childish thoughts and grow up. Stand before your God and receive your marching orders from Him and obey those marching orders. Get your head on straight in terms of how life works, in terms of actually being involved in productive labor and economic sustenance and start cultivating and protecting the things that God has put before you. And then, with your parents' blessing when the time is right, leave them and be joined to the bride that God provides. Welcome her as your perfectly fitted partner and lead her into the life that God has set before you. It was Adam's privilege to introduce Eve to the garden and to the animals that he had named before she came on the scene. Young woman, young women, Walk with God and let God bring you to a man who knows who God is and who knows where God has put him and who knows what God has called him to do and is already taking steps to do it. Let God lead you to a man who will celebrate your arrival and who understands that your partnership is indispensable to fulfilling God's call upon his life. And then, once God has brought you to that man, follow your husband's lead. This is the pattern. The normative pattern for human marriage. Now, 
I haven't told you until now that actually this entire message that I've been preaching is about the gospel. And what you have to do is you have to take Genesis chapter 2 and like a, like a good musician, you have to transpose it into the key of our fallen world. And when you do that, you realize that Genesis chapter 2 has been teaching us the gospel of redemption all along. You see, the Father has a Son. And the Father made all things for His Son and appointed His Son to be the heir of all things. Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. The Father planned that His Son should have a radiant bride with whom to share unhindered fellowship in the glory of God's creation. That was God's plan all along. And when the time was right, the Son left His Father above. As we sang, He left His Father's throne above to win a bride and right the world. The Son became a man. The Word became flesh. He grew up in the home of Joseph and Mary, His legal father, biological mother. And then, as an adult, He left to do the work that the Father had appointed Him to. The Father put Him not in a garden paradise, but in a wilderness for 40 days to test Him. The Son always lived contentedly and gladly within the Father's boundaries, and He always did the Father's will. The bride, however, was not so radiant. She was blemished, guilty, full of shame. But that did not deter the Lord, for He had come to do a gracious work of recreation. In the paradise of Eden, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and created his wife from the man's side. In the brokenness of our sinful world, God had a more profound and indeed painful work for his son to do. He led his dear son up Calvary's mountain and he put the bride's sin and guilt and shame upon his beloved son. Thus the Father caused judgment and death to fall upon His Son, and from the wounded side of the crucified One, the Father brought forth a radiant bride. As we will sing, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in Thee. Let the water and the blood from Thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Now, to what end, to what end did Jesus redeem his bride? The answer is right here in Genesis chapter 2. That we would become the cherished bride and body of Christ, unified with our Lord, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 28. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The church 
one with Christ. To the end that we would be clothed and without shame. Standing before the Father and our dear Savior on the last day. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the Word so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. No more shame. Eve, Eve could rightly look out upon her life at the end of Genesis chapter 2 and say, I owe everything to you, Father. And under you, Father, I owe everything to Adam because I was made from him and for him. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of redemption, looks up and says, we owe everything to you, Father, and under you, Father, we owe everything to your Son, Jesus, because we came forth from Him and for Him. That's the Gospel from Genesis chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would keep us from treating these things lightly. Keep us from acting like we can play with this stuff and manipulate it and adjust it. I pray that you would Conform us to your pattern and your design and the character of your Son and the purpose that you have established for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.